You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. If you're familiar with the story of the Three Musketeers, you may also know its arch-villain, Cardinal Richelieu. Under the young King Louis XIII of France, Richelieu served as First Minister of State from August 1624 until his death in December 1642. During his time as First Minister, Richelieu faced a number of challenges, but none more bizarre than the demonic possessions of the nuns of the Ursuline convent at Loudun. He described the affair in his memoir, writing, since the year 1632, some Ursuline nuns in the town of Loudun, having appeared possessed, the cardinal sent some persons of ecclesiastical dignity and of piety that they should make him a true report of it. They learned by the deposition of said religious that at night, as they retired, some of them had heard their doors open, some persons to come up by their step and then to enter their room with some dark light that caused some kind of horror. All agreed that they had seen in their rooms a man whom they depicted not knowing him, such as was the curé of Saint-Pierre of Loudun, who spoke to them of impurity, and by several impious persuasions tried to win their consent. Then some of them found themselves tormented by these apparitions and began to perform actions of women obsessed or possessed by the evil one. Their confessors and some other wise and pious priests exorcised them, but after they had delivered them, the possession recommenced by new pacts in virtue of which the demons said they had returned. In September of 1633, King Louis XIII, eager to reduce the power of Protestant Huguenots in central France, sent Baron de Labardement to demolish the castle and fortifications at Loudun. When Labardement arrived, however, he was met with a community in chaos. When his reports reached the king, First Minister Richelieu advised immediate intervention. Richelieu had good reason to be concerned. His own lands lay near Loudun, and after the recent hard-fought siege on the Huguenot fortress of La Rochelle in 1628, both he and the king were anxious to eliminate potential Protestant strongholds. When Richelieu insisted that the walls of Loudun should also be destroyed, local priest Urbain Grandier Curé of Saint-Pierre-de-Marchais, had opposed him. In addition, Grandier wrote a scathing satire mocking the Cardinal. Grandier would soon learn that Cardinal Richelieu was a dangerous enemy indeed. In this episode, I bring you a tale of obsession, conspiracy, and demonic possession in 17th century France, the sorcery trial of Urbain Grandier, and the devils of Loudun. This was not the first demonic possession in an Ursuline convent. Records from this era report possessions in at least half a dozen other Ursuline houses throughout France. The Ursuline order was a relatively recent invention, originating in 1572. 
Over the next century, with the aid and support of St. Francis de Sales, French women affiliated with the Company of St. Ursula consolidated themselves into convents. The Ursuline house had been in Loudun less than a decade when the first reports of possessions emerged. At first, it was easy to mistake the nuns' afflictions for physical illness. First the prioress and then a handful of other nuns experienced symptoms. But everyone in Loudun was already on edge in the fall of 1632. From May to September of that year, plague had ravaged the town, and several thousand people, over a quarter of Loudun's population, had died in a matter of months. Among the dead was the Ursuline convent's spiritual director, Prior Moussaud. A few weeks later, as the last cases of plague were occurring at the end of September, the prioress, sub-prioress, and another nun reported seeing the specter of the late prior. As weeks passed, more nuns began to see a male apparition, but couldn't quite tell who it was. On October 7th, a name began to circulate among the nuns. The living curé of Saint-Pierre, Urbain Grandier. After the death of Prior Mousseau, the prioress, Jeanne Desange, reportedly had wanted Grandier to be the Ursuline's new spiritual director. When he refused and the canon Jean Mignon was appointed instead, the prioress was not pleased. A few weeks later, the possessions began to spread. One record relates, Thus the nuns, after having employed the physicians of the body, apothecaries, and medical men, were obliged to have recourse to the physicians of the soul, and to call in both lay and clerical doctors, their confessor no longer being equal to the immensity of the labor, for they were seventeen in number, and everyone was found to be either fully possessed or partially under the influence of the evil one. Exorcisms then were employed. The demon forced to manifest himself yielded his name. He began by giving these girls the most horrible convulsions, he went so far as to raise from the earth the body of the Mother Superior, questioned according to the form prescribed by the ritual as to why he had entered the body of the nun, he replied it was from hatred. But when being questioned as to the name of the magician, he answered that it was Urbain Grandier. Profound astonishment seized Canon Mignon and his assistants. They had indeed looked upon Grandier as a scandalous priest, but never had they imagined that he was guilty of magic. As the possessions dragged on and the exorcisms grew more and more involved, the nuns' symptoms became more shocking to the growing crowd of priests and officials. According to one account, when the exorcist gave some order to the devil, the nuns suddenly passed from a state of quiet into the most terrible convulsions, and without the slightest increase of pulsation. They struck their chests and backs with their heads, as if they had had their necks broken. And with inconceivable rapidity, they twisted their arms at the joints of the shoulder, the elbow, and the wrist two or three times around. Lying on their stomachs, they joined their palms of their hands to the soles of their feet. Their faces became so frightful one could not bear to look at them. Their eyes remained open without winking. Their tongues issued suddenly from their mouths, horribly swollen, black, hard, and covered with pimples. And yet, while in this state, they spoke distinctly. 
They threw themselves back till their heads touched their feet and walked in this position with wonderful rapidity and for a long time. They uttered cries so horrible and so loud that nothing like it was ever heard of before. They made use of expressions so indecent as to shame the most debauched of men. Their acts, both in exposing themselves and inviting lewd behavior from those present, would have astonished the inmates of the lowest brothel in the country. They uttered maledictions against the three divine persons of the Trinity, oaths and blasphemous expressions so execrable, so unheard of, that they could not have suggested themselves to the human mind. As the exorcist's failures persisted, the nuns became more insistent that their attacker was Urbain Grandier. Even then, Grandier's popularity in Loudun might have spared him. But soon, word of the unrest reached Cardinal Richelieu and King Louis. It became clear that something must be done. was an outsider in Loudun. Born in Mayenne, one of six children, at age 10 he joined his uncle, a canon, in hopes of a career in the church. He attended the best school available, the Jesuit College of La Madeleine in Bordeaux, and was ordained a priest at the age of 25. In 1617, the Bishop of Poitiers named him Curé of Saint-Pierre-de-Marché in Loudun. By all accounts, the new priest was handsome, impeccably dressed, erudite and eloquent in his speech. A witness to the Loudun affair described Grandier this way. He was tall and good-looking, with a mind both firm and subtle, always clean and well-dressed, never walking except in long robes. He expressed himself with great ease and elegance. He was sweet and civil to his friends, but proud and haughty to his enemies. He was jealous of his rank and never relinquished his own interests, repelling affronts with such rigor that he turned people against him whom he could have won over by taking a different tack. Nevertheless, he was exposed to many enemies. His haughtiness had made him a great number of them, and the extraordinary penchant he had for gallantry made him even more. Beginning in 1621 and for the decade following, some parishioners in Loudun filed a series of lawsuits against Grandier. These were more or less ordinary quarrels, but they offer an early sign of tensions between the community and the silver-tongued stranger in charge of the parish. In December of 1629, Grandier was arrested on a morals charge, accused of having numerous sexual liaisons with young women in the parish. To be fair, there was good evidence for this. Following the untimely deaths of René de Bru, a royal counselor, and his wife, their youngest daughter, Madeleine, shared her aspirations to become a nun with her priest and confessor, Urbain Grandier. He discouraged her, however, insisting she could do more good works in the world than in the cloister. Grandier then wrote a treatise against clerical celibacy, arguing that priests ought to be allowed to marry. Madeleine was convinced. Instead of a nun, she became Grandier's mistress. The case ended on May 24, 1631, on an ambiguous note. He was declared not guilty, quote, for the present, but this would all come back to haunt him when his treaties against celibacy addressed to Madeleine de Bru 
was presented as evidence in his trial for sorcery. October 11, 1632, the Ursuline nuns officially denounced Urbain Grandier. However, local officials lacked the power to move against the popular priest. One account blames the tensions between Catholic officials and Loudon's large Protestant Huguenot population. One witness viewed Grandier's association with the Huguenots with particular suspicion, writing, Grandier prepared for all contingencies, had already taken his measures. Many of the magistrates belonged to the new religion and were favorable to him. Looking upon him as a secret adherent, they served him as he expected. All might have been well had Cardinal Richelieu, King Louis XIII, and Baron de Labardement not gotten involved in November of 1633. Grandier was arrested in December, and for the next two months, officials collected the testimonies of witnesses, including the nuns themselves. One account relates, As regards the nuns, they deposed that Grandier had introduced himself into the convent by day and night for four months without anyone knowing how he got in, that he presented himself to them and tempted them to indecent actions, both by word and deed. The mother superior and seven or eight other nuns, when confronted with Grandier, identified him, although it was ascertained that they had never seen him, save by magic. Royal officials searched Grandier's home and seized, among other things, quote, a certain writ in form of a treatise on celibacy in the hand of Grandier to prove that priests may marry, and, quote, two copies of a letter from the bailiff of Loudon to the prosecutor general of Paris to persuade him that the possession of the Ursuline religious was a fakery. Also reportedly found among Grandier's papers were four packs with the devil, written in the priest's own hand. From July 8th to August 18th, 1634, the trial of Urbain Grandier for sorcery and the possession of the nuns of Loudon dragged on. As it did, people in and around Loudon began to cast doubt on the truth of the possessions and began to complain about the methods of the exorcists. The danger of unrest became so great that in response, Labardement, on the king's authority, publicly outlawed any criticism of the proceedings, decreeing that anyone found attempting to interfere in the exorcisms or cast doubt on the possessions would be fined at least 10,000 pounds and subject to corporal punishment. Even under torture, Grandier insisted on his innocence, but to no avail. He was found, quote, attainted and convicted of the crimes of magic, maleficence, and possession occurring through his act in the persons of certain nuns of the town of Loudun. As part of his sentence, Grandier was made to do penance by walking, quote, bareheaded, a rope around his neck, holding in his hand a burning torch of the weight of two pounds before the principal gate of Saint-Pierre-de-Marché and before that of Saint-Ursula of the said town, and there, on his knees, to ask pardon of God, the King, and justice, and that done to be led to the public square of Saint-Croix, to be there tied to a stake, 
and his body to be there burnt with the packs and magical inscriptions now in custody of the court, together with the manuscript book written by him against the celibacy of priests, and his ashes to be scattered to the wind. We have declared all his property forfeited and confiscated to the crown, less a sum of 150 livres, which shall be expelled in the purchase of a copper plate, on which shall be engraved the present sentence, and the same shall be placed in a prominent position in the said Church of St. Ursula, there to be preserved forever. Urbain Grandier's sentence was executed on August 18, 1634. The focal point of the possessions and of the testimony against Urbain Grandier was the prioress of the Ursulines of Loudon, Jeanne de Zange. From her earliest years, Jeanne knew what she wanted and did whatever it took to get it. When a childhood accident left her disfigured and her parents determined to, quote, give her to God, she knew that the Benedictine rule was too harsh for her to live by. She wanted instead to join the Ursuline order in Poitiers. And when a new Ursuline convent was established in Loudun in 1625, she knew she wanted to move there. In her autobiography, Jeanne wrote, They made some objections. I did not give in to any of them. On the contrary, I employed all kinds of stratagems to achieve my plan. Soon, not only was Jeanne a member of the Ursulines at Loudun, she was the mother prioress of the convent. she wanted, but did not get, was Urbain Grandier. When the nun's spiritual director died in the summer of 1632, Jeanne reportedly angled to have the handsome and elegant Grandier appointed as his replacement. For reasons unknown, Grandier refused. A few weeks later, Jeanne saw the apparition of her dead confessor haunting the convent, and a few days after that, she claimed to have seen the form of Urbain Grandier, who attempted to seduce her and caused her and the other nuns to obsess over him. Jeanne wrote, At that time, the priest I spoke of used demons to excite love in me for him. They would give me desires to see him and speak to him. Several of our sisters had these same feelings. When I didn't see him, I burned with love for him. And when he presented himself to me and wanted to seduce me, our good God gave me a great aversion to him. Thus all my feelings changed. I hated him more than the devil. In addition to her obsession with Grandier, Jeanne also professes that the devil made her hate being a nun, writing, Also he gave me a very great aversion against my religious profession such that sometimes, when he occupied my head, I would tear up all my veils and those of my sisters that I could get my hands on. I would trample them underfoot. I would eat them while cursing the hour that I entered into religion. All that was done with great violence. 
Elsewhere in her autobiography, Jeanne confessed that she perhaps enjoyed some of this outrageous behavior, describing the pleasure that the attention and feeling of freedom gave her, writing, The devil would often beguile me by an enjoyable little feeling I had from the agitations and other extraordinary things he brought about in my body. I took an extreme pleasure in hearing it spoken of, and was pleased to appear more wrought up than the others, which gave great strength to these accursed spirits, for they act in such a way that their malice is not apprehended. On the contrary, they familiarize themselves with the human mind and draw from it, by means of these enjoyable little feelings, a tacit consent to work within the minds of the creatures they possess. She offered an example by describing the revenge she took on one of the exorcists, who insisted on changing the way the possessed nuns received communion, writing, I was angry that he wanted to introduce a different practice. As I dwelled negligently on that thought, it entered my mind that to humiliate the father, the demon would have committed some irreverence toward the very holy sacrament. I was so miserable that I did not resist that thought strongly enough. When I went to take communion, the devil seized my head, and after I had received the holy host and half-moistened it, the devil threw it into the priest's face. I know perfectly well that I did not perform that act freely, but I am very sure, to my great embarrassment, that I gave the devil occasion to do it, and that he would not have had this power had I not allied myself with him. After Urbain Grandier was convicted and executed, did the nuns begin to find peace. In June 1635, nearly a year after Grandier's trial, the exorcist confirmed that Jeanne had been miraculously freed of the demons that tormented her. According to one account, on their exit, the demons gave her three wounds near her heart and inscribed the names of their conquerors on her left hand Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and Francis de Salle. In spring of 1638, returned to her former health, Jeanne embarked on a five-month tour of France to display the miraculous writing on her hand. In addition to the throngs that came daily, she met some of France's most elite, including the king's brother, the Duke of Orléans, the Archbishop of Paris, Cardinal Richelieu, and even King Louis and Queen Anne. An epilogue to this story comes from Balthazar de Montcogny, a skeptic who claimed to have visited Jeanne and her miraculous hand in 1645. Of this encounter, he wrote, With the tip of my fingernail, with a light touch, I removed the leg of the M of the word Maria, which surprised her greatly. I was satisfied with that and took my leave of her. What to make of the affair of Loudon. The whole story has the feel of an epic tragedy, and in fact has gone on to inspire two novels, Swedish author Evan Johnson's Dreams of Roses and Fire, and English author Aldous Huxley's Devils of Loudon, a play, John Whiting's The Devils, an opera, Krzysztof Penderecki's The Devils of Loudon, and two films, the Polish-language Mother Joan of the Angels and Ken Russell's English-language The Devils. 
Replete with sex and violence, the story of the possessions of Ludun have become almost impossible to separate from the more speculative retellings. What does seem clear is the complicity of Jeanne de Zange, if not the rest of the Ursuline nuns, in the prosecution and eventual execution of Urbain Grandier. For women and girls who were accustomed to a life isolated from public view, a few seemed to relish the chance to appear before a crowd during their public exorcisms. For an ambitious and clever young woman like Jeanne, the desire to rail against the strictures placed on her against her will, and, after her conversion, the chance to appear before crowds as a kind of living holy relic, must have been irresistible. As one witness to those exorcisms, English writer Thomas Killigrew wrote, Arriving to be exorcised, those girls are put on a bench, their heads laid on a pillow, their hands in handcuffs that are easily broken with the slightest effort, and tied onto the benches with two straps, across the legs and the stomach. At first, all this gives the impression of chaining up lions, but as soon as the demon appears, the girls are untied and left in complete freedom, so that they are bound as girls and set free as demons. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and never miss a new episode. This episode was produced by me with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. If you want to learn more about the Ludon possessions, be sure to check out the sources link in the show notes and Michel de Certeau's The Possession at Ludon. Special thanks to Enchanted's Patreon patrons for supporting the production of this and every episode. If you want to help support Enchanted, please visit patreon.com slash enchantedpodcast. While you're at it, why not rate and review Enchanted on Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find us. You can get in touch with me via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow on Facebook, Instagram, and now Tumblr at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. As always, for more information and special features, visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted. <laughs>